really good to see you all. Uh, you might be looking at me and thinking, hey, he looks a little tired and frazzled today. And if you're thinking that, that's because I am. It's been a big weekend for me and my family. My dad got married yesterday. And so that was a, it was a blast. We had a lot of fun. And uh, to celebrate as a family, uh, it was also made for this weekend to be very jam-packed full of things. And so, again, maybe some extra grace as we dig into the Word together, just uh, if, if the ideas or thoughts don't come out quite as well as I intend them to. Uh, but when Karen and I aren't busy trying to plan weddings for family members and uh, attending church, uh, we do like to watch some good shows. And I, we've just started recently to watch the show Castle, which I know is not a, a recent show. The show's been around for a long time, but we've really enjoyed watching Castle. It's a cop drama. Every episode is a whodunit. And so these uh, detectives and, and one writer will, will run around and they'll try to find out who's the culprit of this really what is a, is a murder mystery. What I find fascinating is when they bring in these suspects and then they'll interrogate them in that room that you never really want to find yourself in. You know, the one with the, with the pane of glass that the other cops are watching on the other side of. And whenever someone is forced to defend themselves, you learn a lot about their character. How they act and react in those situations usually lead to a lot of clues to solving the mystery. You can learn a lot about someone when they are forced to defend themselves. And so as we pick up in the story of Acts and follow the Apostle Paul, we've really been following his journey and a lot of, a lot of his moving around and the different mission work that he's been doing. But today, it really transitions into something like a cop show or a courtroom drama, which means it's another time for another episode of Law & Order Special Apostles Unit. <laughs> and I know... If, they're, if those are getting worse, you're right, they are. <laughs> but don't worry, only one more week in Acts, and then we'll go to something completely different, and I will promise not to do any more bad Photoshopping. But that's kind of the, the, the case. We're going to look in these legal courtroom settings and find out exactly how Paul defends not only himself, but defends the hope that he has in Jesus Christ, how he defends the gospel. And so when we learned last week, he was meeting with the Ephesian elders in a, in a coastal town called Miletus. And from Miletus, uh, Paul was not even wanting to go into Ephesus because he wanted to get to Jerusalem as soon as possible in order to make it in there in time for an important festival. And so as soon as he's wrapped up this meeting with the Ephesians, he sails down the coast from Miletus to Kos and Rhodes to Patera and all the way to Tyre. And Tyre was an important port city and that's now on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And from Tyre then on land, he travels south to Ptolemais, sorry, and then eventually Caesarea. And at Caesarea, he stays with Philip. Philip was the same Philip, the evangelist who, who led the Ethiopian eunuch to saving faith in Christ earlier in the book of Acts, someone key and central to the early church. And Paul stays with them. And when Paul is staying with Philip and the other brothers and sisters there, he he has this interaction with a prophet named Agabus. Uh, I really wanted to name one of our kids Agabus, and Karen wouldn't let me. Um, but the, the aptly named Agabus comes in and, and foretells of Paul's imprisonment. He says, you are going to be bound in Jerusalem if you continue. And so, of course, those Christians there say, Paul, we don't want you to do this. Is there any other way? Again, Paul is constrained by the Spirit. He is following obediently the call of God in his life. He knows that he needs to go to Jerusalem, even if it means his imprisonment. And so Paul goes down to Jerusalem. And there, he is warmly greeted by his brothers and sisters in Christ. 
He meets with those from the, from the early church that he hasn't seen for a very long time. I mean, this has been the epicenter of Christianity, this, uh, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came like tongues of fire that filled the apostles and, and, and started this whole thing off. That happened in Jerusalem, and this has been the very first church. And Paul has been busy traveling all around the Mediterranean, and now he's back kind of in that home area of Christianity, and, and they're meeting together. And the Jerusalem elders have heard some of these uh, things that are being said about Paul because he's been an apostle not just to the Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Christ, the anointed one. He's, he's also going to the Gentiles, those who many people don't believe really had anything to do with, with being the people of God and nothing to do with this hope of the Messiah. But Paul is preaching the good news of Jesus for everyone. And because of that, he's coming under fire as having forsaken the law of Moses from turning his back on his Jewish roots. And so the Jerusalem elders, who are very much Messianic uh, Jews who are still very Jewish, believing that Jesus is the Messiah, want to try to calm the water and lower the temperature a bit. And so they persuade Paul to go to the temple and to go undergo a ritual purification, which will just show everybody who's watching that he is still very much a Jew as well, who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. So Paul agrees to this, and he goes to the temple and he is purified, but it does not have the intended response. And where Paul was warmly greeted, By the Christians in Jerusalem, there are other Jews in Asia, these other areas of the world that Paul has been going and preaching to that see him there, and they are not persuaded at all by his purification. They see him in the temple, and then they they are angry, and they incite a mob, and they say that this is someone who has forsaken Moses, someone who has brought a Greek or a Gentile into the temple. And I know many of you will remember the time in which we have put the temple diagram up on the screen, and there was a Gentile courtyard on the outside. That's as far as they could go. They weren't allowed in any of the inner courtyards. And the people had seen Paul just traveling with someone who was a Greek, and therefore they assumed that he would bring him in the temple, or they falsely accused him of that, which he did not do. But it's enough to convince the mob. And so these zealous Jews drag him out of the temple, they beat Paul, and they are ready to kill him. But they're raising quite a fuss. And so this comes to the attention of a Roman tribune, someone who would be in charge of keeping the peace in the city of Jerusalem. And so this tribune grabs some soldiers to find out what all the commotion is about. And he grabs Paul and saves him from the mob who's about to kill him. He arrests him, but he can't make sense of what what is actually going on. He can't get down to the bottom of why everyone is so angry because this mob is confused. They can't even compare their own stories. They don't really know why they are so angry as well. They can't even be on the same page. Now, he wants to take Paul away and to arrest him and to find out the truth of the matter. But before Paul is led away, he wants to speak in defense of himself to the Jewish people that are so angry with him. And so this is the first of three defenses in our courtroom drama that we hear from Paul. And uh, I want to invite Chris Bachmeyer to come up, and he's going to read for us from Acts 22, verses 1 to 21. And these will be the words of Paul to his enraged countrymen in defense of himself and the gospel. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. 
I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in the bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Thank you, Chris. This was a defense that Paul didn't have to make. I mean, he was going to be led away by the Roman uh, officers. He was arrested, but that was to his benefit. It kept him safe from the mob. And yet there was something in Paul that really wanted to set the record straight with his fellow Jews. He, wa- he started by defending his Jewish credentials. He wanted to let everyone know that he had not turned his back on, on the faith and the hope of his fathers. He was Jewish by birth, uh, born in Tarsus, but raised uh, most of his life in Jerusalem, in the very city that this story is taking place He was taught by Gamaliel, who was a very prominent rabbi of that time. And so he was a trained Pharisee, someone that knew the ins and the outs of Hebrew Scripture. Not only that, but he was zealous for his religion because he persecuted Christians and the followers of the way. But then Paul, again, shifts the story. He says, I have been born and raised like you. But then this happened to me, and he goes and retells the story of his dramatic conversion. He wants his audience to know this was not just an ordinary change of mind. This wasn't me one day waking up and realizing that I had believed something wrongly or, or just thought, I don't like this. I think I like this other idea better. This was a miracle. It, it was God. It was Jesus Christ revealing himself to be the Messiah. There was no other way, no other conclusion that I could have come to. It's a miracle that could not be doubted. 
God did this. That is why I am so different. And then Paul finishes his defense by sharing how Jesus told him to go to the Gentiles. He was in that trance, and God said, now go to the Gentiles. And it's at this moment, right at the end of the verse that Chris finished reading for us, that the mob was, was listening to him for a time. But as soon as he reminded them of his, his desire to go preach to the Gentiles, that was exactly, it hit a nerve. It was exactly what they were angry with Paul about. And they get angry again, and then they uh, try to do him harm again, and Paul is rushed away. So the question for us is, what can we learn from Paul's first defense? I think it would be something like this. Your life reveals the change, but your story reveals the why. Everybody that was in that story knew that Paul was different. That was the whole point. They knew that Paul had been a devout Pharisee who was persecuting the Christians, and now they know that he is a, a, someone who is zealous for, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's going to the Gentiles. So, so everybody knew that Paul was different. That wasn't the information that they needed. They needed to know why he had changed. Why was he so different? That's the answer that the crowd needed. It's the information that they were missing or were misinformed about. Most importantly, what Paul knows is that those who were wanting to harm him in that moment didn't need more information they needed transformation. So, so it's not just saying, hey, this is what happened to me. He says, this is my heart. This is how God has shown himself to be true. This is something that matters to the innermost part of who I am. And that's why I'm willing to go preach to Gentiles. That's why I'm willing to stand here and defend myself for you today. Our story is not just about information, but is about that transformation. And I know in, in my, my previous church, I had a senior pastor that had had a really unique philosophy on church announcements. And you're like, oh, great, we already sat through church announcements. Now you're going to talk to me about, about how to do church announcements? Well, hear me out. Hear me out. He said, we don't need to give information to people. Information can be printed in a bulletin, and they, and they can read the information. Information can be on the screen behind you. People can read that information for themselves. Good announcements don't tell you what is happening. A good announcement tells you why it's important for you to take part of it. Right? So, What's happening? Starting point class is coming up. Why is it important? Because if you're new to this church, you should understand how we're put together and what our mission is and what our values are and what we believe is important and what God's asked us to do. That's why it's important. Not information, but transformation. Get to the spirit of what we are doing. Right? And all types of advertising knows this to be true. I've seen lots of different car commercials, and they don't tell me a lot of information about the vehicle but they do tell me, show me what a great time I will have if I buy that vehicle. Man, I've never gone off-roading a day in my life, but if I buy a RAV4, oh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to have the time of my life. They sell you a vehicle not by information, but this idea of transformation, motivation, the spirit behind that information. Paul's doing the exact same thing. This is, this is who I am. You know that I was one way and now I'm another. And let me tell you why. And what is your why? Why are you different than the way you were before? Why do you choose to follow Jesus? Why do you live the way that you do? Why are your priorities different? Why do you choose to make the sacrifices that you make? Why? And if you've never asked yourself that question, it's a good time to start. Do I just do it because my, my parents have done it? 
Do I, do I do it because I know that's what I'm obligated to do? Maybe, do I even trust in Jesus with my whole heart anyway? That's a good place. Start to ask yourself why. But if you ever hope to use your story to impact someone else's life, then follow the example of Paul. Don't just give them information, but show them transformation. Tell your story to dig deeper. I was one way, and then I was another. And why? Because this is what Jesus has done for me. This is what Jesus means to me. That's what we can learn from the first defense of Paul. And yet, his story is far from over. After he is taken away from this angry mob and back to the Roman barracks, then this tribune wants to get to the heart of the issue, and so he's going to to interrogate Paul by flogging him. And it's at this point that Paul reveals that he's a Roman citizen. (laughs) Remember in in Philippi, when he was wrongfully imprisoned, he kind of kept that a bit secret to himself. And now that he's about to get flogged, he lets that be known right away. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a Roman. You can't do this. It would be against the law. I deserve a fair trial. And so instead of a flogging, the tribune tries to talk to both parties. The next day, he brings Paul before the ruling council of the Jews called the Sanhedrin, and he wants to diffuse the situation, get the record straight, and have Jerusalem go back to normal. But Paul doesn't play ball in this instance. He sabotages the whole hearing. He, he knows, likely because he was even part of the Sanhedrin himself, but for sure because he's a trained Pharisee, he knows that there's this divide between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees do not. And so he just says, this is all about Jesus and about the resurrection of the dead. And because he plays that card, there's an instant divide. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are just at one another. And again, it's confused and it's angry. Nothing can be done. And so the tribune has to call off the hearing. And instead, he wants to go and bring Paul to the governor, Felix, in the Roman seat of authority in Caesarea. A group of Jews don't want Paul to make it this far. They take an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed Paul. But word of this planned ambush comes to the attention of the tribune. And so he takes Paul under heavy escort to Caesarea to be with the Roman governor, Felix. It's a good time to remind us of the call of God on Paul's life at the time of his conversion. In Acts 9.15, Paul was told through Ananias by God that he would take the the good news of Jesus to the the children of Israel, which he has already done, and then to, to the Greeks and the Gentiles, and then to even kings. And now we see that some of this is becoming true right before our very eyes. He has just defended in front of the children of Israel, and now he's going to defend uh, the gospel to a Roman governor, someone of, of authority. And Felix gives Paul a fair hearing, worthy of a Roman citizen. Finally, the legal system is working the way that it ought to. He waits until Paul's accusers have a time to arrive from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and then he hears their accusations, where they say he is stirring up riots and chaos in Jerusalem. He has desecrated the temple. That is what they say against Paul. But then Felix also gives Paul the opportunity to speak and defend himself for a second time. I'd like to ask Charlene Barkman to come and read for us Acts 24, verses 10 to 27. And now we see how Paul defends himself in court before Felix, the Roman governor. The governor then motioned for Paul to speak. Paul said, I know, sir, that you have been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years, so I gladly present my defense before you. 
you can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, nor stirring up a riot in any synagogue or on the streets of the city. These men cannot prove the things they are accusing me of doing. But I admit that I follow the way, which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors, and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. After several years away, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. My accuser saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony. There was no crowd around me and no rioting, but some Jews from the province of Asia were there, and they ought to be here to bring charges if they have anything against me. Ask these men here what crime the Jewish High Council found me guilty of, except for the one time I shouted out, I am on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. At that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way, adjourned the hearing and said, wait until Lysias, the garrison commander, arrives. Then I will decide the case. He ordered an officer to keep Paul in custody, but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him and take care of his needs. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. When it is more convenient, I'll call for you again. He also hoped that Paul would bribe him, so he sent him away quite often and talked with him. After two years went by in this way, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. Paul's second defense looks quite different because he is in a different situation. He's not before an angry mob of Jewish believers. He has his accusers there, but he also is now standing before the Roman governor. And yet, he also begins by asserting that he was acting peacefully in Jerusalem, saying, I was just going to the temple with this ritual purification, minding my own business, is what I think he would say in today's language. And then all of a sudden, there were others that falsely accused me and incited a riot. He goes on to reveal that his accusers have no evidence of him profaning the temple, especially since it did not happen. There would be no evidence at hand. But he does confess. What does he confess? He confesses his faith in Jesus Christ. He never backs down from that truth. And so Paul shares the good news of Jesus with Felix and his court. He declares that he has a clear conscience before God and man, always speaking the truth that he firmly believes in with all of his heart. And is there something we can take away from Paul's second defense? I think it's an important lesson. It's that the way of Jesus is a way of truth and peace. I mean, we've, we've read the fact that many people have been angry at the message that Paul has preached. 
So he's coming to town after town and city after city, and Jerusalem was no exception. And when he came into these towns and he preached about Jesus being the Messiah, being the one, uh, he being the one to follow the Lord and, and Savior of all, that there have been people in response to this message that had been so angry that they wanted to kill him time and time again. And so while there has been a wake of anger left in Paul's path, he has never once instigated that response. In this way, he has emulated Jesus, who was silent like a lamb to the slaughter, even as the mob yelled, crucify him. Paul knows that there will always be those hostile to the truth of the gospel. He can't control other people's reactions. What can he can control? He can control two things. One, he can make sure that he never shies away from speaking the truth. I have a clear conscience. I always share what I believe is true. And number number two, he can also control that he has never been looking for a fight, making people angry, or starting to become angry himself. There's always hostility. We can never, ever control someone else's reaction. What I worry about, though, as I look at the church, and church meaning not just Stony Brook here, I'm thinking about taking a more of a bird's eye view at the evangelical church in North America in particular. I am concerned because I see a growing trend of belligerence in the church. Where in the name of truth, now there are a group of Christians who are, who are initiating these confrontations, who are, who are being motivated by fear and anger, who are the ones actively stirring things up instead of the ones bringing truth in a peaceful manner. And I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned that we have strayed from the peaceful grassroots movement of the early church to instigating conflict through loud displays and attempts at political influence. What can we learn from Paul? Well, we learn that we never, ever, ever back down from the truth just to get along with everybody. That's not what we do. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the Word of God as it's been revealed to us. And we will stand up and we will never be budged an inch from the truth that God has given to us. And yet we need to share this truth and live this truth in a way that is peaceable to those around us. The way of Jesus is a way of truth and peace. Never back down and never instigate conflict. Well, Felix finds no reason to accuse Paul. He's guilty of nothing, but he also doesn't let him go free. Like a true politician, this governor from Rome finds a murky middle ground. Doesn't accuse him or sentence him, but also doesn't give him his freedom. He he keeps him really under house arrest just to placate the Jews. He's trying to keep everybody happy, including himself. This gives Paul many different opportunities to speak with Felix and his wife, Drusilla, and share the gospel with him. As Charlene read, Felix was also looking for a handout. Maybe, maybe Paul would, would give him a bribe to, to be released, but that was no, not forthcoming. He had no luck there. And this goes on for at least two years. Paul is in prison for no apparent reason. And eventually, after two years' time, Felix is replaced as governor by Festus. With a new governor, there's now a new opportunity for those in Jerusalem to accuse Paul and try to have a new trial for him. Maybe this time they will get the sentence that they are looking for. And it's during this new trial that Paul eventually appeals to Caesar. He says, no, I don't want to be sent back to Jerusalem to be tried there. Really, as a Roman citizen, I ought to be tried in Rome. I appeal to Caesar. And this seals Paul's fate. Or as Festus declares, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. But before Paul heads off to Rome, 
what will be the last chapter of his known and recorded life. He makes his third defense in front of a king, King Agrippa. This is Agrippa II, grandson of Herod the Great, who sought to kill Jesus at his birth, and son of Herod Agrippa, who died in Acts chapter 12. He was a puppet king of the Romans, but a king nonetheless. And again, now we see all three of these instances come true. Paul was prophesied to share the good news to the children of Israel in his first defense, to the Gentiles in his second defense, and to the king in his third defense. And I want to read for you that final defense he gives to King Agrippa and to uh, Festus the governor in Acts chapter 26. Let's read these words together, or I'll read them and you can listen along. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known it for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which the twelve to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, and that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light both to our people and the Gentiles. So once again, Paul makes a very familiar defense. I am a Jew. But I was also convinced that in light of all the hope that we have as Jews, I was, I was convinced by Jesus appearing to me that he was making all of those hopes come true. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And then he goes on to share the gospel with Herod Agrippa and with Festus. 
that the Christ must suffer that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Here's what I like. This, this feels like a familiar defense, and all of a sudden Festus comes up and he interrupts him. And he says in verse 24, you are out of your mind. You're crazy. What do you mean Jesus was raised from the dead? What do you mean of this proclamation of light, both to the Jews and the Gentiles? And then Agrippa also interrupts later on. He says, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I mean, what nerve Paul has in, in, in appearing before two of the most powerful people in this entire region of the Roman Empire. And in his defense, he has the audacity to talk about Jesus being risen from the dead and hope and salvation and light being found in him and him alone. Like, he's not trying to defend himself. He's trying to convert a king and a governor. They think he's out of his mind. But I love Paul's response to Agrippa and I believe to Festus as well. He says in verse 29, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except these chains. Of course I want you to be a Christian. Of course I want you to trust in Jesus and follow the way. Because even though he is the prisoner and they are the people in power and authority, Paul knows that he has a hope and a fulfillment and a life that everybody needs which gives us the lesson to learn from our third defense, that the gospel is good news for everyone. And Paul is convinced of this to the core of his being. The good news of Jesus is for everyone, Jew, Gentile, governor, and king. He is also convinced that following Jesus is the best possible conclusion for everyone. And that in that gathering of three powerful figures— it's not the king who has everything he needs. It's not the governor who has everything he needs. It is the prisoner bound before him. Paul has the good news of Jesus. He has the hope of Jesus. And as Emma mentioned at the beginning of our service, I don't know what your week looks like. You could come here and you could be just on fire in your faith. You could just feel like, like life is going so great for you. I feel close in my relationship to God. You might feel bored coming to church or just neutral. You, you might have had one of the worst weeks of your life. And what Paul knows and what I'm convinced of is that when you trust in Jesus, you will have all that you need. You do not need to be on the mountaintop. You can be chained like Paul and still have everything that you need. So as the worship team comes, we are going to talk about how Jesus, or sing about how Jesus alone is worthy. How he alone can enter and fix our brokenness, not just of ourselves, but of this entire world. And as we sing and respond, I want you to think about this. What am I lacking? What am I looking for? Where am I looking to fill these needs? And whether today or many days from now, I hope that all who hear this sermon and hear these words as recorded in Scripture might also become a child of God. I invite you to stand as we prepare to sing, and we're going to pray one final time. Gracious God, you have shown much in revealing who you are through your son, Jesus. And as we consider the ways in which we experience the brokenness of this world, May we also consider that there is everything we need in you. 
That doesn't mean we don't experience these brokenness, uh, these broken things, and we don't feel the sting of loss and feel the frustration of things not going our way or, or be held under the sway of anxiety and depression. But God, what we have in Jesus is a companion and the strength and the love to persevere through these things. So may, may we declare who you are, that you alone are worthy, and that you alone are able to see us through. We pray this in your name.